Welcome to Inside the War Room. Ryan right here as always. Today's guest is Robin Hansen. He is an economist and just an all-around interesting guy. Has all kinds of cool papers and books we'll link to in the show notes where you can find at warroommedia.com. You can subscribe for free or support the show there. Uh, Robin and I had a great conversation about medicine and uh, what makes people do what they do. So I hope you enjoy it. Let's welcome Robin to the war room. Thanks for having me. Okay, so let's kind of start off. I read your bio in the introduction, but maybe give us uh, why you kind of got involved and did the things you did. What's the background that got you to where you are today? Um, all across the map. So <laughs> I guess I would <laughs> say my main intellectual strategy is to look for neglected important things where I can see an angle, some some way to think about it I haven't seen from others. So I get excited by that. So that's led me lots of different directions. And I started studying some fields and then realized that some other field looked like it was more potentially interesting and switched fields a lot. And so I finally settled on economics in part because you can see lots of things as economics, uh, cover lots yeah, of topics and, and still see an econ angle to it. Right. That's the interesting thing. When you talk to economists, they'll know these random facts about all kinds of stuff. It's like, wow, how did you know how the valve inside this big piece of machine worked on this thing? Because they study all these weird um, things to put together puzzle pieces. And so um, I always enjoy talking to economists because they, they have a, a wealth of knowledge about a lot of Oh, random things. If you find out random from their perspective, but a lot of just variant things that's um, that kind of helps them shape the way they see the world. I'm glad to hear that. And I'm proud of my associate economist. <laughs> uh, if, I think Plato had a list of what topics you should learn in what order. And I think social things comes pretty late in his list. And I think it's true for yeah. me that early on I could see physics say and understand its appeal and why you'd want to learn that. And it took me longer to understand why you'd want to understand social science. Uh, and I think that's true mm -hmm. for a lot of people. They don't, it's not as magical or captivating early in life as it gets to later. Okay. So let's talk about the book you have. You have a couple, but this one, the elephant in the brain, hidden motives in everyday life. Um, What's the kind of the genesis, genesis of that project? Well, as an economist, um, you know, I've learned all the standard econ things early. And there's a bunch of things that we see about the world that just don't fit our standard stories very well. And in addition, one of the things you can do with economics is invent new, better institutions, better ways of doing things. And I noticed that the world isn't very interested in those. And that's also another puzzle. According to our simple theories, not only should these things work, people should be eager for them and, and excited to adopt them, but they're not. So um, I, over the years, tried to you know, ask how, how big a change do we need to accommodate these strange things that don't fit so well. And some people are drawn to pretty radical theoretical perspectives, different kinds of decision theory or different kinds of game theory or you know, different kinds of sociality or something. And it seemed to me that a pretty simple change would account for a lot of these things. And that's just the idea that we're wrong about why we do them. If you ask, why do people go to the hospital or why do people go to school? They have a simple story. And 
most economists believe that simple story so easily that they just base most of the research on assuming that simple story. And then when they reach troubles, they try to add epicycles to their theories to account for all the strange things they see, but they don't so often go back to basics and say, what if we were just wrong about what this thing's for? What if hospitals and schools and even voting booths are just not for the same things we usually say? They have a different purpose. What what other purpose could they have? And could that make more sense of things? And, and the story is, yes, you can make a lot of sense about a lot of things just by saying, no, they're there for other reasons. And that would be a hidden motive. That is, there's the usual motive you would get if you ask people, why do you do this? And we'd say, mm-hmm. there's actually a hidden motive that makes more sense of it, where that's plausibly the thing you're actually doing. Okay. So let me ask you with that in mind, um, we do a lot of you know historians of the podcast and sometimes it'd be the historians who have covered the same topic, but they have a different perspective. And, and I like to point out that it's very hard to tell history. You know, as a child, you grow up and you go to school and you get a history book. And that's kind of the history of this topic. Um, but if you take something, um, an event, a, a birthday party, and you try to tell the history of it, well, it's not as clear as maybe we'd like it to be, right? So you have little Bobby, he has a birthday, you have his presents, cakes, etc. cetera. Uh, but everyone at that party has a very different, you know, they have the main, the A story, if you will, but the B story of what they're thinking, what happened, who offended who, what went great, you know, how the kids reacted, they're all going to have it. So, so to tell the true full story of a birthday party would be very tough. And so when you talk about these motivations, I, I suspect that's part of what's going on. It's, it's actually quite hard to flesh out all of the intricacies of any particular event um, because we have multiple things that are motivating us. Uh, that we think some right and some wrong. So is that kind of what you're tapping into there? Well, obviously the world is complicated and almost everything we do has many motivations and many historical events are just very complicated. Now, if we were just unsure and admitted we didn't know very much why we do things or why an event like a birthday party happened, that would make more sense. We would just say, look, I, I don't get it. It's hard enough to know anything. But in fact, what we see is pretty high levels of confidence about why we do things or even what happened at the birthday party. (laughs) And those high levels of confidence would make sense if, in fact, we were well-informed and simple enough that those theories actually applied. But in fact, it seems we're just wrong. (laughs) So we are confident about a particular theory and the reality isn't. It's not just that we are oversimplifying. We're fundamentally mistakenly simplifying. So anything we do has many motivations, but there will be one biggest motivation, one thing that most drives our behavior. And you can ask people why they do something, and you might think that's the motivation they would give you, the one strongest one. But plausibly, they don't. The motivation they give you is not plausibly the strongest one. And we can identify other motivations that are plausibly stronger, um, suggesting that there's a surprisingly large level of ignorance or self-deception. People don't actually want to admit to their strongest motivations. Right, because admitting to 
So, so there's definitely ignorance. Um, okay, first off, you're talking to an ignorant human here. So the, there's a lot of ignorance on half this podcast. Let's just get that sure. out there. Um, but beyond that, um, I, I'm, when you said that, I'm reminded of when Trump won in 2016. There was a big debate over why the polls were so wrong. And people theorized that people were afraid to tell the pollsters who were calling uh, that they were going to vote for Trump. And I thought, um, maybe, maybe not. It's, an, it's a rant. First off, I don't know who answers those things. <laughs> but beyond that, I, maybe or maybe they just called the wrong demographic. Maybe they fudged the numbers. Like, I, I don't know and I don't really care. But it was it seemed to be a quite simple answer. Maybe uh, James Comey thing later on changed. I, I have no idea. But that would be an example of trying to figure out something quite complex um, and, and putting a simple solution on it. And in the political sphere, it seems that there's a lot of ascribing of motivations that are very flat and not nuanced that, that could be um, misconstrued and can misconstrue a lot of things. So even, even if, so, so you talk about motivations and people doing stuff, uh, I can see in certain areas like politics where there's a lot of pressure potentially to, to say something. But on the other end of the spectrum, do we find that same type of pressure? People are uh, don't want to admit their true motivations because it would be hard to imagine that in all areas of life we would see this similar type of pressure. Well, um, if you had reason A that was your real reason and reason B that was the reason you gave, that might not feel like pressure and you might even not feel anxious about it if, in fact, most people would accept reason B that you gave. And, in fact, they mostly give reason B, too. So, uh, there wouldn't necessarily be a big correlation between where you're anxious about uh, these things or even in substantial doubt and when you're just wrong. Uh, now, you know, obviously politics in principle should be very complicated. That is, you know, the world is a complicated place. The space of possible policy levers we have is enormously complicated. Each person is a complicated person, all sorts of complicated subgroups. Um, It'd be quite reasonable to expect, well, you just wouldn't find any consistent patterns in what policies people had tried or what their effects were or who supported what. And so a remarkable fact about politics is that, in fact, um, it's much simpler than you have any reason to, right to expect. That is, most political professionals, their political positions fall pretty strongly on a single one-dimensional spectrum. That is, once you know their views on a couple of issues, you know their views on most other issues, <laughs> even though the world's enormously complicated. So people align along a standard ideological spectrum. That's a remarkable fact about politics because, again, the world of policy, the world of people is enormously complicated. So something is making them become simplified there uh, in a way that's even perhaps you know, not useful <laughs> for policy. Uh, it's not plausible that your opinion on three random things should determine your opinion on 20 other th random things. That suggests it's more about showing loyalty and, and being part of a tribe than it is about having analyzed these policy topics. Mm. So thinking about that last comment there, you're, you're right to say, obviously, if a candidate A gets out and you ask him three big questions, you, you kind of have an idea of where they're going to fall. On, on the rest of the spectrum of issues. Um, but going back to something you said earlier, there are things that we can change quite simply and make dramatic impacts, and we reject those. 
in the political sphere, just to kind of use that as a as a, contra- a compare and contrast here, um, you're, you're kind of articulating that, that we simplify it because it helps us feel better about who we're selecting, basically. You know, Bob says this, I like this. Tammy says that, I don't like that. Therefore, I can like this and not like that. Um, in these other areas that you're talking about where we can make changes, if we were to simplify the ideal, what does that help people look at things differently? Or are these things that this can't be simplified and that's part of the problem to help people change their motivation? I mean, I think the world is complicated and the most accurate, mm-hmm. careful analysis of most things will have to be somewhat complicated. But loyalty is simplified. <laughs> that is, mm-hmm. if most of these po- political questions or even other policy questions are really just a proxy for who's on my side and who's against me, then we should expect them to become simplified. That is, what we expect is that we find some markers of who's with who, and we agree enough on those markers so we can figure out who's on our side and who's on the other side. And they have to be Mm -hmm. simple enough that we can work with them, that we can figure these things out. And so it does seem like we are using politics more as a way to form tribes and teams and show our loyalty to our team than it is to sort of grapple with the full complexity of the issues that we're arguing about. But in the, in the non-political realm, you said that there's times where we'll study things like going to the hospital, why people go to the hospital, and eventually they have to start accounting for the anomalies and the, the anomalies pile up and it's no longer an anomaly. Now you got to figure out, well, how do you reconcile this? Um, how how do we go about evaluating things for for a layperson who's not a trained economist, not not um, a professor and all this, you know, just the average Joe? How do we go about evaluating something, taking the information that we have, realizing at some point the anomalies are no longer anomalies. They're actually uh, substantial data points we to deal with. And then reevaluating our decision-making, um, how we're going about choosing these various you know, decisions or uh, motivations or whatever it might be. Well, let's take an example of, say, medicine. <laughs> um, okay. In general, you should expect medicine to be complicated and you to be regularly, relatively ignorant. So ideally what you'd want is to identify someone who could represent you with respect to medicine, where they can be a specialist and learn a lot more than you do. And you need to have a relationship with the specialist such that you can trust them, that their knowledge will become your knowledge. Um, And then you could use them as your agent to make choices for you in medicine or to advise you on your choices And that's a generic way that we should deal with a complicated world in a large world where there's just a lot of us who can specialize. But, um, you know, the question is, what markers are good for you to use as someone you can trust? And, you know, are you trusting too much, perhaps, in these areas? So uh, in our book, The Elephant in the Brain, as you mentioned, we spend the first third suggesting why in general you might be wrong about your motives And then in the last two thirds, going over 10 areas of life, one of which is medicine, to try to show you that you are, in fact, substantially wrong. And that's the meat of the book to to convince you that you really do need to reconsider things. And so on medicine, I'm going to say you are really quite substantially wrong about medicine, not just in small ways, but in pretty big ways. And to convince you of that. Give give me some examples. Yes. So I I have to go very concrete. Like the, the biggest, most surprising fact about medicine is 
we have randomized experiments where we give some people more access to medicine. Like we lower the price for them, make it free, say. And other people in the experiment have to pay for medicine. And then the people mm -hmm. who get cheaper access to medicine, they consume 30 or 40% more medicine, more visits, mm. more drugs, more surgery, more, more everything. And then we can compare these two big groups of people and ask which one's healthier. And the surprising fact is they're about the same on health. Random groups of adults and children and, and seniors looked at over many years, some of them getting lots more medicine than the others, randomly assigning them to either treatment. The ones who get more medicine are not in fact on average healthier. That should be a big surprising red flag. You thought you were going to the doctor and the hospital, et cetera, to get healthier and that it was expensive and you had to decide how much you were willing to pay and that you didn't quite know who to trust and you were using some indicators you thought might be adequate to judge who to trust on these things. And now I'm telling you that whole process you've been going through has been pretty inadequate because the overall net effect is you're not actually on average healthier because you've been spending more money on medicine. Um, so, Something's so really quick, big going wrong case, there, right there. In case my wife is listening to this, I can continue to eat the Oreos. That's what I just heard. I don't need the diet. That's what I just heard. I, don't just that's just for her. Side note. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, so I don't need that. Most effects on your health are not mediated by medicine. Most of your health is caused by diet and exercise and sleep and air pollution and a range anxiety and a range of other things. So we could discuss which of those things we have what evidence about. But most people, when they think about health, they do focus on medicine, even though it has sort of the weakest correlation with health of any of the major things people ever talk about in relation to health. So there's a puzzle. Why are we so obsessed with medicine? Whereas in the United States, we spend one dollar out of five on medicine. <laughs> Well, uh, you know, okay. vastly just, more than we spend on exercise or air pollution or the other sorts of effects. Yeah. So let me hop in here real quick. So um, you have the studies, which is randomized uh, people who are getting medicine for cheap or free, take more 30, 40%. If you're paying, you take less. Ultimately the medicine doesn't have a, a substantial effect. Um, but people believe this to be true by and large. Um, my question then is, is this, how are you measuring the influence of like media or social pressure or, or things like that? Because um, if, if what you're saying is true, is it that more people are getting cheaper free medicine and so they're promulgating that they feel better? Uh, because if the people who pay less are feeling the same, shouldn't they be telling their friends? So why... Are the people who, who are paying or are paying more but taking less medicine not getting their message heard that the medicine didn't do a lot? It's a great question. So where I live in Washington, D.C., the major newspaper, the Washington Post, where I've lived for now 23 years, every week it has a section on health and medicine, a whole separate section of the newspaper full of, you know, dozens of articles, each issue about various things of health and medicine. Never in all of those 23 years have I ever seen an article about the general overall effect of medicine. <laughs> it's always about some particular promising treatment or issue in a hospital or something, right? So mm, clearly niche. they have chosen not 
to present the news. And I would expect it's not because they have a thing against it, it's because they don't think their viewers want to hear. So I think most consumers of medicine are not very willing to believe this fact. It's not the thing they want to hear. They would rather hear about how we don't get enough medicine and how we need to get more and how they should lecture their friends about not getting enough. Okay. So that, that actually makes sense then, right? Because thinking through this, if I said, if I just in a vacuum, I said, Hey, I was talking to this really smart guy today. He studied medicine. Medicine's overrated. Don't worry about taking it. What they're going to say to me is my mother has a heart condition. My father's on can My father has cancer. Bob has high blood pressure. He just broke his arm. So the, the redirect is not actually about medicine as a category. It's about a very niche specific issue. And so you're almost trying to have two separate conversations. One is an overarching principle about medicine and what that means. And then but people would probably think of medicine in terms of I've got a migraine. I've got to take some kind of pain relief. And so uh, maybe that's part of the problem with this right. medicine issue. So I've been reading the history by Herodotus. This is an ancient Greek yeah. who wrote lots of histories yeah. of this world. Yeah. And yeah. one of you know, there's just, it's just over and over lots of little stories about people in the area and what they did. And a huge part of a lot of these stories is divination. <laughs> Anytime anybody has a big decision or a big issue, they're going off to the Oracle of Delphi and asking what to do. It was just the thing to do back then. And you weren't a responsible leader if you didn't ask for divination about your uh, potential actions you were about to take. Um, and people, if you hadn't asked the gods through divination about what to do and things had gone wrong, people would have felt really quite free to criticize your lack of care. In our world, we don't believe in divination. <laughs> we don't criticize people for not getting divination, but we do believe in medicine and we criticize people for not getting medicine. So if you had some condition and then it got worse and people said, so what did the doctor say? And you said, but I didn't go to the doctor. They would feel very free to criticize you. And if this was true for your child. They would feel really quite morally indignant that you were so callous toward your child as to not have taken them to the doctor. So in our world, medicine is the thing you're supposed to do if you're a careful thoughtful person, just like for the ancient Greeks, consulting the gods through divination was the just the thing a responsible person did. And just as the Greeks didn't really bother to collect a track record about the correlation and effect of divination, uh, people today don't really bother to look for the overall track record of medicine. It's just something we all strongly believe in. But then there is this evidence I've just mentioned that calls it into question. And that's been known since, say, 1980. So, you know, um, 40 years we have known this. And the word has gotten out to sort of academic researchers in medicine, but the larger world in media just doesn't carry the word out, plausibly because people just don't want to hear it. It's also plausible that they're getting paid. I mean, Pfizer sponsors a lot of stuff. Pfizer doesn't sponsor this podcast. They can. I just sure. say what I say, but, but Pfizer runs ads. Um, you know, we had on Dr. John Moncrief a while back, um, and she's arguing that um, serotonin is not linked to depression. And one of the things that she said was that they can't actually measure serotonin in the brain. It's um, 
there's an enzyme that breaks it down and they're measuring how much it breaks it down. And then they're trying to reverse engineer right. how much um, that is. Uh, and obviously I'm not smart enough to have an opinion on that, but that's, but that's her take. Um, and hearing that, the, the thing that struck me was they started, I think she said measuring the serotonin in, in the sixties. And I, I was kind of caught off by that because um, our ability to measure stuff in the sixties and seventies is nowhere near what it is today. And you mentioned this has been known um, since the eighties. How much of this bad ideology is based upon maybe science that wasn't as accurate as we were led to believe back in the fifties, sixties, seventies, that got a big momentum push. And then no one really bothered to course correct because of maybe money or status quo or whatever. So I'm a professor. I'm a researcher. I'm happy to admit that other researchers um, exaggerate the confidence they have in their research results. So we have some blame in that we often, you know, claim things that are true and they aren't. And we are more confident than we should be. But I think in this sort of area, the more fundamental problem is that the world doesn't want to hear even when the results are solid. That's also true about, say, education, which is another area of our book. Most people believe in education. They believe that people should uh, go to school and that more school would be better and be better if we subsidize school. And then, you know, the, the literature on education does say that individuals benefit by going to school, but it's a lot more doubtful about whether there's an overall social benefit from people going to school. And, you know, it's relatively clear that most people don't remember much from school. They don't actually learn that much from school. The things they learn, they don't remember very long. And what they do remember, even a long time, isn't very useful. And that's all just pretty obvious about school. But people are just not very interested in hearing about that. They'd rather talk about how great school is. And in a lot of areas of policy, um, academics and researchers are somewhat impotent because it doesn't really matter what conclusions we draw when the world has the conclusions that they've already drawn and do not want to change. The school thing is interesting because, you know, we, we don't send our kids that we send our kids to private school, um, for, for a lot of reasons, but I went to public school myself and going through the public school experience. I don't know of anyone that I know that went through public school now that looks back and goes, man, that was really something like we really accomplished something as far as in the school itself. The arguments that I hear against it, though, are we can't afford it. Um, they're going to be socially awkward if we don't send them to private, send them to private school. Um, it's not worth it. You know, we did it. We came out OK. Um, and yet it's, it's weird because you'll hear them bemoan their own time going through high school. And so it's, it's a weird, you know, we're, we're kind of looked at as uh, the weird ones because of the type of schooling that we do. But, but yet I don't know anyone who goes, man, public school was just the way to do it. But there is a very strong social pressure to, to put your kids in public school and to kind of go through that conventional system. And so, um, and to your point about the politicians, that's a, that goes back to a political issue because it's a voting issue, right? Because if a politician came out and said, Hey, we're going to get rid of the public public school system. Uh, that's a one term. <laughs> that's a, you're probably not getting elected. And if you do get elected, you're not getting voted in uh, for a reelection. And so that one 
it makes sense the data data doesn't work because I don't think anyone really wants to tackle that complex issue. So, so I think these issues are deeper problems than politics. I mean, I know that many of us realize we have political problems, uh, but if we look out sure. outside of politics, just in our personal lives, uh, we might not think things are going as badly there. At least we're making reasonable private choices. And our book, The Elephant mm-hmm. in the Brain, with my co-author Kevin Simler, is suggesting that you're wrong a lot there too. <laughs> it's not just politics that's going wrong. Something much bigger is going wrong. You don't actually know why you do things. <laughs> and that's making it hard for you to choose and plan how to live your life. Uh, you have some stories you tell about why you do things, and um, those are stories you like to tell and people like to hear, but they don't actually make that much sense. <laughs> so our challenge is to help you understand, if you want, what are the actual motives you have behind these various things you're doing, like going to the doctor or going to school or voting. And then if you want to reform your behavior or society, that would be a better basis is to know what's actually going on. So someone could hear this and go, well, how do you know what you're doing, but we don't know what we're doing? What gives you the special insight for you to figure this out? So I am a social scientist and I didn't know before starting to study social science. So the the key thing is there's a world of humans behaving, doing things. And in each area, like school or medicine, the straightforward strategy, which is what we do, is to collect correlates, to just list things we know about schools or medicine, various features of a behavior, and especially pay attention to the ones that are a little puzzling, the ones that don't make so much sense from the usual point of view, the ones that are especially worthy of explaining. So you, in each area, collect a set of puzzles, and then you collect a set of possible explanations. You'll say a list of what could be the motives here. If we're not going to school to learn the material, say, why might we be going to school? If we're not going to the doctor to get healthier, why might we be going to the doctor? So you collect a set of possible explanations, you collect a list of puzzles, and then you do matching. You say, which of these explanations can explain more of the puzzles without you know, too many extra hypotheses you have to throw in to make the story work? That's just straightforward <laughs> talking and thinking the way any of you could do, but you haven't done it because you didn't sit down and collect these puzzles and collect the explanations and try to do the matching. So, and the way I would persuade you is to help you do that for you, is to do that with you. I can list for you a bunch of puzzles about each of these areas. You can nod and look them up and see that they are in fact basic things we know about behaviors in those areas. And I can list for you a set of plausible theories and you can say, yeah, I guess those would be plausible theories. And then I can show you which theories do better at explaining which of these puzzles. And that's what we offer you in our book is an explanation by looking through the details. So again, the major thing is you live your life, you do particular things, but you aren't out there looking for patterns in human behavior. Uh, You aren't looking to see what are consistent things people have done all through time and all across the world, and especially collected the puzzling ones. What was the biggest discovery about what people got wrong? Well, I think in our society, the medicine one is probably the most surprising. In the United States today, is that pretty much a historical peak 
of reverence for and spending on medicine. Uh, again, with $1 out of five in the U.S. goes to medicine. That's a pretty high level of spending. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, especially revering medicine, are especially going to be shocked to see that it's actually a much lower value than we thought. Now, say religion is also something most people in the world have revered through history, but we today are less religious. So if I tell you something about religion not being quite what it seems, most people in our world won't be quite so shocked about that. Uh, If you're, say, not somebody who's really into art, if I tell you that art isn't quite what it seems and about what it seems, you may also not be shocked by that. The point is, we each have something we see as most sacred, and we will be the most reluctant to hear a story about why our sacred thing is not as it seems. So what is your sacred thing? So I've actually put some effort into that over the last few months. That is, I decided to really try to understand what was the sacred, why why were things sacred, what does it mean for a thing to be sacred? And so I collected a list of what things people treat as sacred and a list of what correlates there are of sacred, and I tried to come up with a theory of that. That's not in the book Elephant in the Brain, but um, that's uh, a simple story that, that I've come up with. But I, in doing so, I realized that I, I am tempted to treat some things as sacred, and I, don't, I think everybody will need to have something they treat as sacred. I think that's a pretty strong need. It's pretty hard to do without. And so in looking at my options, I chose three things that are my best shots at what should be treated as sacred. Uh, first of all, math, because math actually has a lot of the features that we assume of the sacred. <laughs> sacred things tend to be idealized, simplified, abstracted, um, thought to be permanent, thought to be general, mm-hmm. thought to be uh, you know universally valuable. And math has all those features. <laughs> so um, there's relatively little harm, I think, in treating math as sacred. And in fact, math has been really quite useful to humanity for a long time. Math number one, sacred. Second one, honesty. Uh, In my world of being an intellectual, um, the idea that you're trying to just figure out what's true and you're going to say it directly and clearly when you find it and not going to sort of slant it or hide it um, is important. That is, if somebody makes a good objection to what something you say, you should acknowledge a good objection it's a deadly objection. You should acknowledge and change your mind. Uh, you should give credit where you found things. Those are all important features of honesty. And I think they're so important that I'm okay with treating them sacredly. Um, the last thing is innovation. If, in terms of humanity getting better, the world getting better over time, innovation is overwhelmingly the biggest cause. It's the thing that most deserves credit for almost everything we cherish and value. And so it's hard to undervalue innovation, hard to overvalue innovation. Um, Now, treating something as sacred does harm to it. That's the important, subtle thing to understand. And that's why you'd want to be cautious about how many things you did treat as sacred. And, you know, we can go into that if you like, but that would be the essential one. I think I do have a simple account of what it is to treat something as sacredly and why it exists and what, how it distorts things. But the bottom line would be say by treating medicine as sacred, which we do, we get it wrong. Medicine is less effective. In fact, 
because we treat it as sacred. We die more and live less because of that treatment. We will value it more highly and be more unified in our feelings about it by treating it as sacred, but we will get it wrong more. So you listed three things, um, honesty and innovation and innovation is really tied to human flourishing. Um, so really the last two things are ethical, um, things, honesty is an ethic. Uh, innovation is not an ethic, but the way that you articulate it is a, is an ethical position that you want people to get better. Um, so how do you account for knowing what is the proper ethic or not? How do we, how do we account for that? Because, Someone might say, well, you're being honest, but being honest doesn't pay you, doesn't really pay off. There's, there's plenty of times where being honest costs you. And so innovation, innovation comes at the expense of all kinds of things. So how are you able to determine that, that these sacred things for you aren't, aren't actually harmful uh, or you know, causing more harm to society if we all were completely honest and we all were pro-innovation? So... Just because something is important and valuable doesn't mean you should never compromise on it. And if you were to treat something practically and realistically, as opposed to sacredly, you would readily admit that and you would readily make those trade-offs. So mm-hmm. a striking feature of treating something as sacred is that you become less willing to make those compromises or to admit they're called for. You're also less willing to sort of find mixtures and merges between things Sacred things are supposed to be clearly distinguished. They're not supposed to be mixed up with other sacred things. We're not supposed to have prices on them or trade-offs with them, especially monetary prices. Uh, We're not even supposed to think about them very consciously or or planning-wise or instrumentally. We're supposed to feel them more aesthetically, emotionally. Um, These are many of the correlates of the sacred. And so, you know, as a practical matter, I would have to admit, of course, honesty has, uh, it's not, total value. There are times when you should reasonably trade it off against other things. Uh, There are other values in the world. Uh, But if you treat honestly in a sacred manner, you're reluctant to make those admissions. You're going to just be more uh, strict about it and, and not, and say you're doing it for itself. So another principle of the sacred is that you do, you promote the sacred for its own sake, not for the sake of something else. It's not an instrument to something else. It's an end in itself. Uh, and so many people treat that way, honesty that way too. But uh, one benefit of treating something more sacredly is that you put a higher priority on it, even if you're not as subtle about it or careful or, you know, efficient. And another thing is that you can see it together and bond a community together by their shared valuing of it. So, I would say the United States together is in part bonded together by our shared sacred treatment of medicine and democracy and a few other things. Uh, And also um, say academics and intellectuals are often bonded together by their shared secret treatment of honesty. Um, But, you know, we're in fact going to be less effective because of that. was it hard for you to discover these sacred things? Because as I'm hearing you talk about it, um, it would seem that it'd be hard potentially for self-realization of what might be sacred for you, for anyone out of you, but it's been, you brought well, it up. More fundamentally, the elephant in the brain book is about 
apparently discovering a way in which we are all kind of aliens to each other compared to what we thought we were. That is, we are not the creatures we thought. Mm -hmm. We are actually pretty different with pretty different mm -hmm. priorities than we thought we had. So, mm -hmm. you know, the heroic intellectual, you know, inside of me goes, yay, I've discovered important truths and will tell the world and I will be <laughs> celebrated as a great intellectual hero, right? <laughs> so <laughs> most of us as intellectuals, you know, have this glorious ambitions to discover something important to tell the world and to be mm -hmm. heralded as a hero for advancing the frontiers of knowledge, right? Um, so mm -hmm. most of us then presume that, yeah, we do want to learn big, important things. And if there's something important and big that people have had wrong and you could figure out how to change their mind about it, that would just be a fantastic thing to do. And your life would be well worth living for doing so, right? And so that's the presumption I and most everyone has about delving into these difficult areas. I think mm -hmm. the fact is there are some things you can learn that the world doesn't want to hear. And maybe you didn't so much want to hear either. The world's not going to celebrate you or reward you for it. They may even criticize you for it. And you won't feel so great about it either. You were actually wrong to think that you just wanted to know everything that was important. I think that's something you have to be open to considering, even if you think of yourself as a broad-minded and curious person who wants to learn, know lots of things, that doesn't mean you want to know everything. Doesn't mean you'll be happy with everything you learn. Yeah. And so when you thinking about what you're saying, um, I suspect, I'm curious that the collectivism that permeates a culture like the United States, right? Um, in the U.S., I suspect, I could be wrong, but I suspect most people aren't really concerned with U.S. foreign policy. Whatever you think of it, they're not really concerned with it. Now, occasionally they'll get up in arms over something. If there's a political debate, then maybe that raises the stakes. But today, what we're doing in Djibouti, no one cares about. Um, and part of that is because even though I live in kind of a rural part of Texas, um, there's a sense in which I'm part of the greater collective of America. Uh, you're in DC, which is a lot closer to where these decisions are being made. But of course, you're not, I don't think to my knowledge, you don't, <laughs> you're not making any, but, right. but you're a lot closer in proximity. Um, I think it'd be a lot harder for you than me, maybe to come out really strong on one side of the table or the other, just because of where you're at in the country. But regardless, in the U.S., to oppose the U.S.'s foreign policy is almost viewed as treasonous, uh, especially now, maybe not so much, but especially when we invade Iraq and stuff like that. Like To really oppose it was very much viewed as um, you're against the country, you're against the troops. Even though most, most Americans don't have a connection to these various countries or these various wars, these various policies. Um, so when you think about the medicine, the school the foreign policy thing here is this an is this a western thing or is it just collectivism amongst culture so if you went to china i imagine you would see this because they have a different type of collectivist culture it might not be about medicine in school but it would be about something else so um but then the way they would see our foreign policy would be a complete 180 to how we see it so like they would look at our foreign policy and go oh my gosh these guys are crazy they're imperialists they're taking over the world they're the worst people ever 
Um, so they would actually have a collectivist mindset, but it would be almost a 180 on some issues as ours, but they would still fall into some of the same traps, I guess. So is that a correct paradigm of how various pockets of society might work out? So on politics, our usual motivation that we will say, if you ask us, is that we are trying to help, help the city, help the nation, help the world through our support of various political factions and their policies. Mm -hmm. Our best explanation in our book, The Elephant in the Brain, is that your main motivation in politics is to show loyalty to your teams. You are trying to clearly telegraph to your people that you are with them and not against Mm -hmm. them. And that means if you're with different people, you will telegraph different policies and support them. And that makes sense for that purpose. If that's your purpose, it it makes sense to, uh, to have those different opinions. It also makes sense to not look very carefully at the policy itself. If you can relatively clearly determine what your group thinks, if your group has an opinion on Ukraine, there's not much point in studying the details of Ukraine, very particularly to decide what you think. Because if you come up disagreeing with what your team thinks, there's going to be hell to pay. Uh, So Mm -hmm. uh, you might think, you know, it makes perfect sense for something that hardly matters to you to just go along with your group. It might be more surprising to you, though, when your life is on the line and you are dealing with the medical system that you also (laughs) don't look very carefully at effectiveness and the evidence and reconsider it. You're also very political in a sense and going along with your community's official position. Okay. So let me ask you this then. It seems if you, if you watch just about anything, um, maybe the most common fallacy that I see committed is the either or fallacy. And you're touching on that here as well. Like either you're pro medicine or you're against medicine. Um, Either you want to live or you want to die. You don't care in this political sports, whatever the either or fallacy is. I, I see, I'm sure I do it as well, but it, it seems to be committed over and over and over and over and over again. Perhaps is some of this rooted in the fact that people don't stop to think about committing the either or fallacy um, and the implications of that. So it could be simple as to your point, there's a fear of saying something to align with the other side, but, but also I see people commit the either or fallacy in just a regular conversation. Like, Either we're going to do this or we've got to do that. It's like, well, no, 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 there's actually a third option. It's like, oh, I didn't think about that. It's like, yeah, right, because it's not either or. And so do you think that the awareness of that might help people pull back and go, hmm, it's not either or? Well, it depends on what the function of your conversation is. So if there are, say, two factions in your company, one of which wants to expand into a new geographic region, say Europe, Another faction doesn't want to do that expansion. Um, And if what you're trying to do is in a conversation, reassure your allies you're with them uh, or accuse someone of being a rival and not being loyal enough, then it makes sense to project this high dimensional space of possibilities down to this one dimension of with us or against us, right? So for the purpose of political loyal testing or accusing uh, people, want to do this projection of a high dimensional space down to a low dimensional space, which is what you're saying with the either or fallacy, right? To simplify the space of options so that you can categorize people as being on the right or the wrong side. If what you were doing instead, say, was trying to brainstorm to come up with new options, 
that would be exactly the wrong thing to be doing, of course. Uh, you're trying to generate new possibilities in brainstorming. And then you want to expand and see the large dimensional space of possibilities and look for promising options. And so the story is that, you know, people are, in fact, uh, mostly trying to project political loyalty. But that makes sense in politics. The surprising thing is, even in other areas of life, people are usually quite unwilling to consider unusual options. So that's the idea of the Overton window, the idea that there's a set of limited set of options that are socially acceptable to consider. Mm -hmm. And raising an option outside of that limited range is a red flag of a dangerous person. And so people, the either or fallacy, as you say, is you know often practically implemented as this Overton window, as here's the acceptable range of options. We are aware there's things outside of this range. We're explicitly not considering mm -hmm. them because we consider mm -hmm. those to be a sign of mental illness even. Yeah, the Overton window is also a good a good paradigm refresher you know if people yeah i'm thinking about it as you're talking here you know i don't know if you follow sports but either you love lebron james or you hate him it can't be that you like him for this and dislike him for that and appreciate this but think he's overrated you can't have that opinion and so and part of that it's it's, it's entertainment like it's very entertaining to watch people debate lebron james or michael jordan in this way that's very divisive well here's an but even I, I do think it carries a more striking but, example which is you simplify yourself and you make the either or fallacy apply to you by having an identity that is in principle, you are an enormously complicated creature who can have an enormously wide divergent range of opinions and stances toward a wide range mm -hmm. of things. But if you were to explore and realize that full variation, you would be a hard thing to classify and a hard person to predict and therefore a hard person to relate to. And so we all simplify That's ourselves. That's why I don't have any friends. Is, it, Say again? is that why I don't have any friends? Is, it, wait, is that why I don't have any friends? Wait, did well, we just solve something here? Maybe. <laughs> but the, the key point is most people simplify themselves through an identity. An identity is a simple description of who they are mm -hmm. that other people can yeah. understand and that will actually faithfully reflect your behavior so that they can predict mm -hmm. who you are. It's a brand promise in essence for you. And people do tend to create and maintain such identities. And in essence, they simplify themselves greatly in order to do that. That is, each of us has an enormous potential to be complicated if we wanted to, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. but we choose not to. We choose to simplify ourselves so that others can predict us and therefore, you know, trust us. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I mean, thinking through that, it's, it's striking because, there was a period of time where I was writing a geopolitical newsletter and I'm a, I'm a libertarian. So um, if you apply libertarian principles, it becomes quite hard to tackle some of these issues because the war in Ukraine, Russia invading, NATO expanding, who's at fault, ethics. It's like, oh my gosh, that's a big mess. It's not a, um, but and so this is before all that, but going through, it would be funny because sometimes the readers would write in like, oh my gosh, you're a leftist hack. I'm like, well, the dude yesterday called me a right wing Nazi. Like, I don't know. I don't know. And I'm not, I'm not saying that I've got, I'm as complex as, as you're articulating, but just delving in there and trying to consistently apply libertarian principles to various issues. I found it wasn't worth my time because the readers either wanted something right or left. They didn't want right. right. To, like on drugs, I would be very much with the liberals on, on, on legalization and, and drug reform and prison reform and all that stuff. And on the right, I'd be with them on certain tax issues, but that's not, 
It's very, it puts you in a so very here's a spot. interesting related question, which is on how many subjects should you have opinions? <laughs> so one way to solve the problem of like not being very knowledgeable, you see, is to just have a limited set of topics that are your specialty and then only have opinions on that limited set of topics that you've gone into enough detail to have a thoughtful opinion on. Yeah. Um, that would therefore, you know, make you more predictable to people around you. It has the added benefit of simplifying you for people. They can classify mm -hmm. you as the person who knows about this topic and maybe has these opinions on that topic. And they don't have to worry about all the strange opinions you might have on other topics because you don't have opinions on those <laughs> topics. <laughs> and that would be useful mm -hmm. to the world because you will now specialize. That is, we can all listen to the person who most specializes in a topic and not have to all regenerate an opinion for ourselves. But mm. unfortunately, many people see that as sort of a political betrayal to not have opinions on all the subjects their political faction has opinions on. To say, mm. that's not something I'm studying. I've decided that's not going to be my area. Mm. I'm just not going to have an opinion on that. Um, yeah. So, and so and see, people think... want you to be simple, but also have a lot of opinions, <laughs> which forces right. you to have this, <laughs> you know, big correlation across the opinions, which means your opinion on each one can't be very well informed by the details of that topic. You basically have to be going along with your tribe. Mm, yeah, no, I think that's a good point. And see, what I find interesting and disappointing at the same time is um, I had on a guy, it actually came out on the podcast yesterday, but um, by the time this comes out, it'll be a few weeks old. And we talked through... Um, um, it was more of a, it was just more of a political, he's a more social progressive, um, social activist. Um, and we were talking through stuff and, and what I appreciated about listening to, to his perspective, even what I disagreed was, um, some of the things that he's touching on, I, I think there's, there's a lot of there, there, um, and, and some of the things that he's criticizing the other side for, I think he's missing, but also he's right in how they have said what they're saying. And to me, what's really interesting about these type of discussions is not to be the informed expert, but try to think about your ethical principles or how you, whatever you, whatever you call that. Um, and, and how does it apply? Can you, can you take what someone's saying and, and think about that issue? Um, like with the war with Ukraine, you know, it's really hard for, for me to have a strong opinion on what should happen there because as a non-interventionist, it, it's, it's, it's very, okay, Russia's invaded, but oh, by the way, they were kind of provoked and that does that, so, so it makes it very complicated for me to, to have an opinion that I feel quite strongly on, but I also enjoy that because it, it, it makes me question, is my ethic of non-intervention the correct one? Um, and so I think those are where if you can, if you can do some of that, at least I find that interesting. Maybe I'm just being too sacred. <laughs> I don't right. know, but those are the things that, that, that actually interest me. Not, it's not the opinion per se. It's can your principles or your ethics or whatever it is or how you view the world how does how does it apply if you're trying to be somewhat consistent and and think about it in that in the in the microcosm and in the big macro picture? Does it actually work? What you're saying here does it actually work um, compared to what you said three weeks ago about some other topic? And that to me, those are the interesting discussions. And again, you're, you're the you're the expert here, so you can tell me why I'm I'm, I'm off my rocker on thinking like that. But that's to me, that's what's interesting. So if you have specific opinions. <laughs> Uh, about, I don't know, even the war in Ukraine, which weapons are being used in which provinces and who's winning or losing there. Um, those specific opinions don't require you to have that many other specific opinions. But as specific mm -hmm. opinions are opinions you can have and then not have other opinions. 
The more general your opinions are, say, as some general non-interventionist stance, then the more your general opinion does touch on and have implications for a lot of topics. And that mm. will tempt you to think about a lot of topics to judge whether it work, it makes sense. Now, you could touch on those subjects just to test your general thing and not actually you know, leave with particular opinions on those particular topics much. You could just say, I was checking how this general opinion worked out in those cases so that I could refine my general mm -hmm. opinion, but I'm not actually going to retain a particular opinion on the war in Ukraine or say something. Um, or you might end up retaining a particular opinion on the war of Ukraine. So there's, there, there's a danger that the more general your opinions are, the more you might be tempted to therefore try to have opinions on lots of things because your general opinion has lots of implications. It's a danger. It's very much a danger for sure. <laughs> okay. I know we're up against the clock here. I'm going to link to obviously uh, your book we discussed. You have other books. Um, where do you want me to push people to? I know you have a website. Uh, the basic website. Where do you want me to gmu.edu uh, is my main website. I have a blog, Overcoming Bias. I'm on Twitter at Robin Hansen. You can just Google my name and find me lots of places, including YouTube. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I, I really enjoyed this. It was nice to talk to you. Okay. Hope you enjoyed that with Robin Hansen. We'll link to that in uh, his bio and everything in the show notes at warroommedia.com. Please consider subscribing to the newsletter, if nothing else. Uh, we would love, we do giveaways and stuff like that. Love to have you there. And we'll be back tomorrow.